Welcome to Honorverse Today, the Honor Harrington podcast brought to you by TPE Network. Let's be about it. Hello there, Honorverse fans. How are you on this fine, fine evening? Uh, this is Raul Wybera. You are listening to Honorverse today. And as always, I am joined by my very good friends, Jim Airwood and JP Harvey. How are the two of you tonight? Doing great. Doing great also. Looking forward to this book. Yes. What was it? Uh, Zig Ziglar had an answer to that. How are you doing? It's like, I'm doing great, but don't worry. I'll be better before the evening's over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, I am definitely looking forward to talking about this book. Uh, We are shifting away from honor, but we're not shifting away from the main story, which is something a lot of people don't, it's something that seems to be misunderstood. Just take my word for it. Trust me on this. Crown of Slaves and the Saginami Island stories are not meant or intended to be skipped in the what they some people call the main sequence. The real distinction is the characters that are in the main focus. All right, and you, you're going to yeah you you're right. You're going to see a lot. Some people who've read this before like to point out. Well, we've seen crossover, and we see sections that are basically repeat periods of almost repeated text and david's taken some criticism for that actually at points and they might seem like duplications but in most of the cases there's actually a subtle shift in perspective and i'll admit i for, for those who if you if you had to wait two years sometimes more from one installment to the next it might seem it, it, it might not seem to work that well but if you're reading the books, boom, boom, you know, in order, after one after another, a- as the complete story, you're going to find it actually works. So if you've not done a reread or if you're doing a reread now with us, you'll probably get a little bit of a different perspective of the books. So that, that's my long-winded introduction uh, for Crown of Slaves here. And rather than boring people with my uh, blah, blah, blahing, Jim, I'm going to turn this over to you so you can give us a bit of a summary idea of what we're in for. Okay, fair enough. Crown of Slaves by David Weber and Eric Flint. And from the back of the book, the Star Kingdom's ally, Erewhon, is growing increasingly restive in the Alliance because the new High Ridge regime ignores its needs added the long-standing problem of a slave labor planet controlled by hostile Missans in Erewhon's stellar backyard, which High Ridge refuses to deal with, is the recent assassination of the Solarian League's most prominent voice of public conscience indicates the growing danger of political instability in the Solarian League, which is close to Erewhon. In desperation, Queen Elizabeth tries to defuse the situation by sending a private mission to Erewhon led by Captain Zilwicky, accompanied by one of her nieces. 
When they arrive on Erewhon, however, Manticore's envoys find themselves in a mess. Not only do they encounter one of the Republic of Haven's most capable agents, Victor Kachat, but they also discover that the Solarian League's military delegation seems up to its neck in skullduggery. And, just to put the icing on the cake, the radical freed slave organization, the Audubon Ballroom, is also on the scene. Well, there it is. Skullduggery and all. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Uh, skullduggery afoot. <laughs> it, it's hard to for anyone to pass up on a book that has skullduggery. Oh, gosh. Yeah, you bet. And incidents of mischief. Oh, yes. And all that other stuff. Okay, JP. Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> tell okay. Us, tell us the particulars on this volume. Here we go. First published by Bayon. I probably don't need to say that anymore, but I feel like I need to say it. Uh, in August of 2003, this novel came in in its original form at 720 pages. It's first in the side series called Wages of Sin. The novel obviously is not called Wages of Sin, but uh, but the series is called Wages of Sin, apparently named after a key location in this first novel of four. The series is the previously mentioned power collaboration between David Weber and Eric Flint. Crown of Slaves is a fitting title once we see what happens within the story. So I'm not spoiling the story, sort of, because mm -hmm. we're talking about the story, but we'll get there. As you mentioned, events in this novel are happening while the High Ridge government is still in power in Manticore. Little emphasis is placed on any specifics of the High Ridge or other of High Ridge himself or others in the government. And instead, Queen Elizabeth plays a little more prominent, but still relatively minor role. Featured are characters like Ruth Winton and Judith and Barry Zilwicky. There are a lot of other supporting and familiar cast members throughout as well, including uh, you mentioned Victor, who's actually a main character in here, uh, Anton Zilwicky, Kathy Montaigne, and uh, the Ushers, both of them, husband and wife, and Jeremy X. And that's not an exhaustive list, but there are a lot of familiar names in here. At least if but you've the read story, the uh, short stories. Yes, yes, which... We've encouraged people to do so. Uh, if you just heard that list of names and don't know who we're talking about, it would be it would be time to go go back and catch up on the short stories. Yep. Uh, this is not a kid friendly book, <laughs> and some of the others haven't been or have had parts of them that are not kid friendly. These aren't advertised as kid friendly books, but this one is not Very a kid friendly not. book, meaning that the content is clearly written for adults. To read. That said, it discusses attempts to address some pretty ugly issues, all focused on slavery and some of the related immoral conduct associated with that particular immoral institution. There's a single reference made to Victor Kashat, by the way, being a natural killer. That's a real thing in, in the real world, and I'm going to talk about that later, that I'm going to assume that when David and Eric used that phrase. It was used on purpose and wasn't disposable. And it ties to some very interesting historical work done by American military scholars about killing in combat. So more on that later, if time permits. 
And uh, I can even potentially drop some references into the show notes for folks if uh, we decide that we think that's of interest to anyone. There's a beautiful acknowledgement at the start of the book, by the way, uh, the part that people always want to gloss over. There, it's a really awesome acknowledgement to Andre Norton from David and Eric, and I wanted to be sure to point it out if you didn't see it there. And it, I'm going to read it to you real quick. It's I was actually sweet, wondering, because uh, she died. She, she was one of the great ladies of science fiction, and, and she died, I think, in... Uh, I, I wasn't sure if it was right before or right after yeah. the book, this book. And I, apparently it was right... It was short a couple of years after this book was published. Yeah. But she was a great So here you go. Um, To Andre Norton. Andre, you proved long ago that being a giant has nothing to do with your physical stature. You've been taking giant steps and teaching the art of storytelling for over a half a century. And we are among those, those many, who have been privileged to be your students. It's time we told the teacher, thank you. Ah. And if you aren't familiar with Norton's work, you know, that's, uh, that's gently assigned homework. Go, go look her up. And yep. I think you'll, you'll be surprised at what's out there. So, uh, cool, cool honor paid to Norton by, uh, David and Eric. Yeah. And that's it. Those are the uh, particulars. Can I add one thing, sir? Of course. Okay. Uh, th- this comes with the, the sequencing relates to the sequencing of the books. This book actually occurs just before the main events of War of Honor, that that meeting with where Honor has a cameo, where she meets with Elizabeth and uh, the Alexanders, yeah, that meeting happens. If if you noticed in the text, right before she was about to leave for Sidemore Station, back in that previous book. Yeah, I forgot about that. That's cool. People wanting to read the main stories in sequence will sometimes read this one first. And I've actually done that on one of my read-throughs. And I'll be honest, what I have discovered is it actually reads smoother. I don't know how else to put it, if you stick with the publication in order. Uh, Because I think part of it, there's this, meanwhile, back on, sort of since. And then the way the Solarian and Mason arcs are set up, it, it really seems to flow better read this way. Just a side note from something that's come up in the fandom more than once. Yeah. All right. How about overall impressions? And I'm going to toss it back to Jim. All right. Fair enough. I had a hard time getting into this one. Uh, There were some great things and other things I didn't get. It took me three weeks to slog through this one. And when something takes me that long to read, normally I've give up on it and put it aside. One thing I found particularly troublesome about this book is that there seems to be an awful lot of emphasis on sexual perversions with the characters. Now, I'm not a prude, okay, but it seemed a little excessive at times, bordering on, even bordering on gratuitous. I'm just not used to this theme in the Honorverse, uh, at least not to this degree, and I don't need to be beat over the head with it. Uh, this point is going to have an effect on my rating. I don't know. As as I said, I had a real slog fest with this one, and uh, your your mileage may vary. How about back to you, JP, for your <laughs> overall impressions? Yeah. Terms and conditions apply is what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I, I agree. This isn't a fun book. I, I pretty much alluded to that in the, the setup info, but that's not a surprise to me in that we've seen it coming. The issue of slavery has been an undercurrent in the honorverse from early on, and we've seen a slow build to the start of this series that actually focuses on that ugly problem. Before diving into the specifics, we get an, un, uh, an unsettling dose of what will ultimately fuel what might be called specific lanes of attack that'll be taken to try and solve the problem. It, it, it's not all dour. Instead, we see events unfold that show some promise and hope for those who were enslaved when the novel begins. It remains to be seen, though, how successful all of this will be. My point being, this is the first book in a set of four. So there's a lot that happens here, and there's a lot more that's going to happen. And as a reminder, I don't know what's going to happen because I haven't read those other books yet. But when I see four books and I read the first in the series, I make some assumptions. Mm. While it's a very different book in the context of what we've read so far, I, I definitely enjoyed it in that we get to see the start of the formal and lawful effort to address the problem of slavery. There have already been some, but it's been minimal. Previously, there have also been some illegal or immoral type activities, certainly in the form of the ballroom. It's refreshing to see the start of what I hope is a more powerful, lawful push to stop the problem. It's not going to be easy. Maybe that's why there are four novels in the set. So how about you, Raul? So as uh, Jim and JP have intimated, this book might not be to everyone's taste in part. And it's definitely not a kid's book in part for what Jim says about some of the more risque elements that might put you more into mind of something you might've seen out of um, Piers Ant, some of Piers Anthony's books or, uh, Terry Goodkin's uh, Wizards books, and it's like, wait, where where did this come from in the Honorverse? But even beyond that, it that the books do deal with some very difficult matters at times, and they can at points be disturbing. But in the same breath, there are some moments of almost unexplainable silliness. The matter of genetic slavery is going to become an increasingly bigger part of the main saga. And if you think about it, you know, the timing of Horatio Hornblower and then the slavery issue in contemporary world history, about the right time. So, so it, it does, you know, it's like if you wonder how, how do you jump from that to that, well, you go back and just look at the timing in uh, actual world history. I'm not going to say much more on that particular matter now because I, it's going to be hard to discuss in some ways without getting into spoilery territory. But there's also other disturbing scenes and discussions. Thandi Palain's background, character I love, but her background is really disturbing, or the near rape of Barry. Things like that kind of yeah. bother you. So you, you get stuff like that, and then the flip side, where some of the silliness is concerned, you see the city of Maytag and its central seat of power, the Suds Emporium. <laughs> Interesting contrast. In some ways, this might not be a surprise. I don't know if because the books do push into some morally gray areas, both politically and philosophically. I believe someone sitting here in this conversation said they wanted to see more uh, development of the Audubon Ballroom. Well, here it comes. 
Here it comes. <laughs> there it is. Here it comes. The book is difficult to get into at first, but you have to take it at the pace that it sets. This book sets its own pace and you will either follow it or you will be just completely frustrated. If you let the book set the pace, then you'll find it's, if not a much better read, actually maybe even a good read. So that the, 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 this is just elements toward understanding the book. Uh, there are a couple of items that I'm going to bring up now that annoy me a little bit about the books. The multiple references to military-grade weapons. Keep in mind, I'm sitting here in the U.S. That, that's sort of a... Unless you're talking about howitzers, which actually some private citizens own even, mil military-grade is sort of a misnomer. Um, anyone who's solidly into the shooting sports will, will tell you that it's not uncommon for civilian arms to actually see, exceed the lethality of military arms. But this isn't necessarily a book uh, or a series on military history in that regard. And the other thing that sometimes was annoying, and I think actually David even mentioned during the interview that occasionally he had to chide Flint about, he, the, the only word I can think of it, to describe it is an inverse Clark's Law, for lack of a better description. Uh, so, sometimes tech used too much as magic, uh, as a magic plot device. Uh, so, sometimes it was a little hard to wrap my brain around, um, in particular, the ease of hacking. And I know that was, yeah, yeah that, that was one that is like, Egg! or the uh, DNA sniffers. What, what was another one? It, it was more of, uh, it got, at times that got into a little bit of a macguffin realm. But you're thinking of the, the advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic? Exactly. Law of the three? Yeah. It, it, exactly. Yeah. And it seems that sometimes it was, okay, let, let's find the girl. So let's do magic in reverse uh, and just call it technology. Uh, DNA sniffer that can... Right. That can find uh, that can find uh, Barry for us, or actually, in this case, because I have to tell the story, and I this is this is the way that I need to get there. I guess, mm -hmm. yeah. Hadn't really thought about that, but there. Yes, now that you say it, I'm like, hmm. it's common. <laughs> it's fairly common in science fiction. Yeah, uh, the other Honor Harrington books tend to be a little more solidly based on you know some sort of a projection out of things in, in the science. So it it, it just Felt like a little bit of a discontinuity overall in that regard. Yeah. You know, it's funny the three of us, not surprisingly, tied our comments to how dark this book is. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Maybe dark's not the right word, but, you know, the, it's, not a, it's not a fun book. And I, I hit a point, and maybe Jim, when you were taking the pauses or whatnot to slog through, I had... I had multiple times I, I stopped to take mental breaks because it was heavy. And I, I caught myself somewhere in the middle of the book, somewhere very close to the halfway through. And I realized I was thinking, this is not at all as lighthearted as the rest of the honorverse we've been exposed to. Mm. And as quick as I thought that, I realized that was the silliest. I, I, I know what I was thinking, but what I thought was not right. This is heavier than everything else, but as soon as I uh -huh. thought that, it was like, wait a minute, we've had fatalities on a massive scale because we're watching 
militaries fight and clash. We've had assassinations and duels and large scale assassinations in terms of a nuke going off under the octagon. Mass murder. And ma- I just, and I, I thought, huh, wait a minute. This hasn't I mean, literally been mass murder on the millions. at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I had to. I had to adjust my viewpoint a little bit somewhere there in the middle. Not that I didn't want to keep going, but I had to reframe my brain some because I realized that everything else we'd read in total wasn't this heavy, but there was still a huge amount. We've talked about it in themes at times of what shows up here is honor or other military leaders wrestling with the fact that they are responsible for the deaths of their troops for all the right reasons. You know, and, and this the, the book uh, explicitly addresses this at some point uh, in, in the yeah. conversation, you know, with uh, Webb Duhavel, I believe it is discussing it. And then again with uh, Jeremy and so yes. it, it comes up more, it comes up directly more than once. It didn't make it easier, but it helped my, it helped me frame what I was reading a little bit. It helped better, make I it, guess, a cha- it like. helped, it helped the books actually challenge you. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway. Mm-hmm. I, I jumped back in after it wasn't my turn. Anymore. No, no, no. The, 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 whole point, the whole point here is opening it up for people to definitely jump in. And yeah. actually, you just gave us a good transition because we've talked about some of the folks here. And that led, leads us directly into some of the characters. <laughs> <sighs> so start off with uh, Anton Zilwicky, Barry's adoptive father. Yeah, I like this guy, but... He wasn't around very, very much. A little bit, then he disappeared, and then he came back. He is going to be much more involved. And yes, he, it's hard not to like the guy. How, uh, how in the heck could this guy, who has uh, Elizabeth's niece and his own daughter, just disappear? <laughs> I mean, that is one thing in this story that didn't make any sense to me. I mean, he just left, and I know it was addressed in the story, but, you know, gosh darn. It made me think there's got to be more to that that we don't know. It was was a little strange, right? The the level of trust he has with the kids, and it's Well, they're not kids. Ruth Ruth is in her mid- Kids in quotes. Yeah, Ruth is in her 20s. Yeah, but there was a discussion about the risk that all this involves and he, when he goes off and does other things that he needs to be doing, it was almost like, eh, I found a guy that I trust to keep an eye on him. And then he just goes, well, so I, and Webb de Havel wasn't wonder just if there's found more a guy. To story. Webb, yeah. Webb, yeah. Webb de Havel, and I, I'm sort of taking the devil advocate here or, or defending because I went through the same sort of gyrations myself because Webb was there as part of the entourage to Arohan, not simply yes. not you know not simply a mentor or anything like that, and this was in theory nothing more than a diplomatic mission for the funeral, uh, to try to try and leave a good taste in Arohan's mouth, if not with uh, Manticore, at least with uh, the Winton dynasty. So th- there was yeah, absolutely yes. no hint or no clue that this would be anything beyond a basic jaunt with uh, Ruth getting a little bit of career mentoring from uh, <laughs> from Anton. 
You and, are, and in still, fact, you could even take the argument, still, huh? You are still talking about Ruth Winton, who Anton is supposed to be taking care of. No, he's supposed to it's be mentoring. Same difference. Not quite, because the people who are supposed to oh. be taking care of her, quote, in, in the context that you mean it, are the Queen's own uh, regiment. Well, I'll tell you what, if it was my niece and Anton just disappeared and came back later, I'd be pissed. I'd kill him. Uh, that, that's actually, isn't that what, isn't that what Elizabeth said, uh, shouted fairly loudly at one point? Exactly. Uh, the one and, who... the, and also another point I want to make here before you go on uh-huh. is when you get to be my age, 20 year olds are kids. 20 year old. Well, yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> I, I still refer very I still refer to my twenty year old son as Stinker Bell, so yeah. yeah. See. I mean to me, JP's a kid. <laughs> to me I'm a kid. <laughs> yeah. I think my wife would agree with you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I know mine would. <laughs> did you did you would put you, together what Anton Zulwicky actually left for? What what the informa- what it was that he was chasing down? Uh I'm ashamed to say I did not. It was the lead that brought down North Hollow. Oh, okay. So it really was uh, that yeah. important on the one hand. And when you, when you consider where he was going, it was like, okay, he, you, you could easily make the argument that why would he bring her? He ha- Someone has to go there, and he can't bring these younger folks into a situation that is that dangerous. Ah. Just... Plain, like I said, I'm, I'm I'm just plain devil's advocate, and like you said, Elizabeth was. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill the guy. <laughs> I and and then, we're talking about a character, and then I'm going to put Ruth in a convent. We, we all agree we like. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we're not uh, we're not critical of Anton at large, but it was that oh Elizabeth me certainly as well. was. I was like wait, and he's going wet. What? What is yeah yeah. <laughs> And in fact, it was Michael uh, Winton that uh, kind of, uh, excuse me, sister, you're exceeding your authority here. <laughs> you might be queen, yeah. but there's limits to your authority. All right, let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> uh, the next character that we did see a lot of, Victor Kasha. Oh, my gosh. You know what? One minute you hate this guy. The next minute you feel sorry for him. The next minute you almost like him. And then... It turn around and you hate him again. Exactly. The guy is a total creep. The, 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 <laughs> this the, this is exactly the response you're supposed to have, I think. Oh, gosh. I guess that makes him a well-developed character. Uh, he will be. And, Jim, you're going to get your wish to see more of Anton and Victor together going forward as well. Oh, boy. <laughs> yep. Jenny Usher. And I'm sorry, I cannot think of her as Virginia. She, for me, she's Ginny. One smart cookie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Sort of a product of her engineering in, yeah. in some ways, but. She's a freaking weirdo is what she is. <laughs> that she, too. She seems to be with the right guy too. That their <laughs> skills go well together. Oh, yeah. See, this is one of the problems that I had. Her and her husband, but she's trying to hang out with everybody else and and her husband's okay with this that's just fine because you know? she won't she except she is absolutely faithful won't cheat period mm. now you 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 can 
you, you can argue the question of her, the other aspects of her behavior in that. And okay, in some ways she's almost Beowulfin. In other ways, it's like a product of her, of her genetic, of the genetic engineering. She's a flake. She is a flake. Oh yeah. But she's yeah. still pretty damn smart. Yeah. Princess. Speaking Ru- of pretty smart. Yes. Ruth. Ruth. Yes. Princess Ruth Winton, Queen Elizabeth's niece, who, interestingly enough, wants to be a spy and is a cybertech guru. Unfortunately, takes a little too much to the area of magic, but, and Anton Zawicki is considered one of the best in both, which is why Elizabeth. The mentoring begins. Mm-hmm. Are we Very, going to. Yes, sir. Are, are, uh, well, I shouldn't ask it as a question. I should say, I hope we get a little more mentoring than we did this book. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, okay, uh, you're a spy. Go go do your thing. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, we'll get a little more. All right. Barry Zilwicky, Hermosity, <laughs> which was one of those silly things I had mentioned. Yeah. Um. Well, now we call her Her Majesty. No, Her Mousity. <laughs> and? She does not like Her Majesty. <laughs> <laughs> She's pretty, she is pretty humble. Yep. And one of yeah. the sanest people you will ever meet in spite of the horrors that she's gone through. Yeah. And yeah. we got a big chunk of that what, in the uh, short stories. I really liked her and Ruth together. Yeah. That was, that I, I loved a, it. it. That, that, that was that a actually, dynamic duo. That alone is enough to make the book a, a worthwhile read. But yeah. you, you look forward to the parts where those two are together. Mm. We have Michael Overstegen back. Yes. And we will see him in the other uh, series as well. He, he, he comes across all three series. And I will tell you, he, he is one of those characters that the more you get to know him and the more you see of him, the more you like him. Oh, I liked him the first time I saw him. Oh, I, at first I found I him like rather, him I, I found him rather annoying, as annoying as everyone else uh, in the books themselves seem to consider him. And then it's... No, as I mentioned before, yep. as I mentioned before, every time I read his stuff, he sounds like uh, Quint from <laughs> <Yeah>. Jaws. <laughs> we that, will be... That, see- that makes it fun to listen, mm-hmm. to read. And we will be seeing a whole lot more of this character as we continue. Uh, I do have to call out Ahmed Griggs, uh, Laura Hofschult, uh, the all of their Majesty's own. You know, you really hardly knew them, but God's losing them hurt. It was one of those things that was able to hit you in the feels. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Thandi Palane is going to be a major character going forward. Uh, Good. Natural Good. selection used as genetic engineering. In the Mason aspect of the Crown of Slaves uh, series in particular is where we'll be seeing her, yeah. as well as Lara, Jana, and the uh, other Amazons, <laughs> which was also interesting. Mm-hmm. The, it, it'll be a little more subdued. The, the, they, they will be a little more subdued in, shall I call it, their leisure time activities uh, going forward, J- just so you know, Jim. Yeah. Well, they, it. It's established who and what they are. So now they, we don't need, we don't need all that anymore yep. because we understand exactly what they're about. Mm-hmm. 
So, what happens when a terrorist goes straight? Jeremy X, you, you, I remember yeah. hearing you mention uh, wanting to see more development here as well, uh, JP. Yes. Yep. You know, and I, and I had an interesting thought about Jeremy. First of all, yeah, he is going to continue to be a major character. Uh, I don't know if it's quite clear yet, but at some point it's going to be his targets. They, they always eliminate, they always avoided collateral. It was one of their points to avoid collateral damage. And it's actually going to be a Mm -hmm. plot point at some, at some future stage. And they were very selective in the targets. In fact, one good way for an ex slave to get killed is to violate rules of engagement, shall we say. Yeah. And one of the things that struck me, I almost like to think of uh, Jeremy X as the anti-Tom Bombadil. (laughs) I I, I mean, for some reason, I can't help but not see him in that feathered cap and the mismatched outfit prancing around. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay, next. I like Jeremy X. I like like the way that he... At first, I thought he might be inflexible, but, you know, they, he listened to the logic of everything and said, okay, we'll try it your way. He has, he has a very specific He seems objective. to be bright enough to know, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and if you can achieve your, your goals legitimately, you get more mileage than if you yep. do it even for the right reasons illegally. Yeah. And he, he doesn't seem to have a problem with understanding that and decided it might be time to mm-hmm. be the terrorist who goes straight. Exactly. And like I said, it, it, he, even in calling him a terrorist, he, he was an individual, not a government, but he was very specific, avoided collateral damage, and his targets were what would be considered legitimate. Uh, if it were, if he was a government, it would be legitimate military targets. Yeah. Something then, we see starting to happen at the end of the book. Right? Indeed. And we'll be seeing more of this. Yep. Next, we have Honor Versus' own, very own Harry Seldon, Webb de Havel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if you don't recognize... I wouldn't have thought of him in that way, but... Yeah. <laughs> uh, I actually find, you know, I actually asked David about that one. What, what, what was he thinking, Isaac Asimov, when he... Uh, when he, when he uh, came up with whether he or Eric came up with the character, and he was nope had hadn't hadn't thought of it that way with a whole bunch of laugh faces, and it's like I had to say, well, you you know how I how I why I had asked right um, history history uh, politics mathematical equations yeah. all mixed together. It's like oh yep he 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 knows why yep. And JP, you've got some notes on uh, the naming of Webb de Havel, at least the first half of his name. Yeah. So, and and half of his, the second half, maybe, uh-huh. of his name. This this guy, as near as I can tell, is a fictional representation of a fellow named William Edward Burghardt Du Bois, or W.E.B. Du Bois, who lived in the 1800s into the mid-1900s in the U.S., real-world American civil rights and anti-slavery advocate and advocate, um, activist. So he, uh, turns out, was the first, near as I could tell from my research, was the first black American to earn a doctorate, and he earned it from Harvard, by the way. 
He led a movement called the Niagara Movement up in the um, Great Lakes area, and then later was a founding member of the NAACP. He, by the way, is the second reference to a real anti-slavery activist in the Honorverse, at least that I that I've caught. The first one was a reference to William Wilberforce, whose name was used in an anti-slavery operation of honors called Operation Wilberforce, but we got no explanation about that. It was just the name used. I don't recall an explanation, but Wilberforce was a was a powerful and predominant anti-slaver who was responsible for ultimately helping to pass laws that made slavery illegal. So two cool references. Of course, Duhavel is built out as a character that we yep. will call Webb or W-E-B Duhavel, but based on Webb Du Bois. And cool the, stuff, I thought. The, the De Havel is also a historical nod. Uh, that's a nod to Vaclav Havel, uh, the Czech dissident. Ah, cool. And if you think, what, what's, what's interesting, if you know a little bit about him, he was stridently anti-communist. At the same breath, he was a very strong socialist and also a supporter of uh, direct democracy. And if you think about Eric Flint's philosophical aspect yep. here and it makes it makes, makes sense. sense yeah so the web yeah. and the de havel perfect combination and directly uh describes this character walter mbc or mbessy walter mbc someone he, he's right a rising power in erohan we will see a lot more of walter we will not see much more of naomi thank you <laughs> she was a very she, she annoyed me almost as much as she annoyed victor mm. uh i am going to call out ringstorf who is another character that comes back from the uh service of the swords short story he could have just they could have just almost dropped anyone into the slot but he's sort of a link to mesa in some ways beyond just being a simple matter of slaves and the fact that he's coming back at the same time, Overstegen is coming back. If it's giving you the idea that there might be something bigger afoot, I think that's a little part of the idea behind using okay. Ringstorf. Then, then there might be. Hmm. Yeah. Gee, there might be. We do see uh, the Templetons back again, Gideon and Abraham. Yeah, these guys made me tired. Huh? <laughs> these guys made me tired. Thankfully, they didn't last too long. Uh, <laughs> yep. But yeah, the Mossad and terrorists are back and they haven't improved much. No. I'm trying to think, are we going to see any more Mossad and terrorists? Or are we just going to see? We'll, uh, we'll find out. Yeah. Uh, a very important character to mention. Now we, we got to look at the Solarian League. Louise Razek. He is a Solarian naval officer. He's going to have... He was actually... Uh, he was actually Thandi's CEO, and he is going to have an increasingly important uh, role in the whole Mayan sector, and he's actually going to be a critical character to the Solarian aspect of the story. I, I'm not going to say more. I'm not going to say more about him um, because I, I don't want to spoil what's going to happen in the next Crown of Slave books. Uh, a couple of other characters to keep an eye. Okay, first of all, you need to practice the name because you're going to be saying it a lot. Oh, no. 
Yeah. Watanapongzi. Yeah. Practice the name Jerry Watanapongzi. Uh, Idi Habib. The, these are characters. The, these are officers under Razak. I actually like the characters. Yeah. yeah I but, do too. Oh, no problem gosh, the, with these characters. I just don't like that name. Well, it's but, fine when you, ha- it's fine when all you have to do is read it. Uh, I, yeah. I, I don't think David had planned on us having a podcast though. Oh, he's sitting there laughing like hell at it. You know damn well he is. <laughs> no, 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 no. Where he's going to be I laughing be. like hell is when we uh, hit the, when we land on the uh, planet with uh, Polish settlers. Oh, I see. Czech settlers. What? Well, you may find me, like we have Jeremy X, right? We, we, you may find me talking about uh, Jerry W. Right. <laughs> but here's the thing with a name like that, whether you pronounce it, pronounce it correctly or whatever, you're not going to forget who that character is because it's not another Jones. Not at another, all. Um, so that name is, is going to stand out. Yeah. And yes. And if we see more of Jerry W. <laughs> it, there will be no doubt who we're who we're reading yep. about. Now let me try this. Watana Pongzi. That's how I believe it's pronounced. Watana Pongzi. I'll tell you what. I I hear you say it now. It isn't so intimidating. Watana Pongzi. Just so David, you know, I practice. I had us, to practice sir. that before the show. <laughs> now is that a na- is, is that supposed to be a Native American? I don't know. I wonder. It would be interesting to it would be interesting to know, but it it kind of sounds like like a city uh, like a town in Wisconsin or something. Dan Watanapongzi joined Hightower. Okay, Hightower. We're going to find out <laughs> how to pronounce. Oh wow, there is actually a how to pronounce on it. Um, he there there is there's a businessman. There's several profiles on LinkedIn with the last name. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, none of it, them it are would be interesting. none of them are jeery. So, <laughs> it would absolutely yeah. be interesting to look up the uh, the entomology of the word. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or last ju- or just that... ask David Weber, huh? Yeah, just ask David, David Weber. Yeah, David, help hey, us, sir. Help, help us. us. Yeah. <laughs> the last character he, I want he, to mention. He's like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> he would believe me. He he he's quite capable, especially just laughing up his sleeve. Oh, I'm sure. The last right. character to mention is Orville Baragos, or if we wanted to get it more accurate, Baragos. But there's not much to say here about him. He's only introduced uh, almost in passing, but he is going to become increasingly important uh, as the governor of the Mayan sector. Ah. The Mayan sector is going to be sort of the key, uh, the key region where much of the crown of slaves saga takes place. And I got to clarify mm-hmm. something too. I, I know officially the series is called wages of sin amongst the fandom. It's st- still commonly referred to as the crown of Slaves series. And I tend to fall into yeah, that. Yeah. Makes total sense into that habit. Yeah. Uh, a few places that need to be mentioned and organizations. Arohan, a place we've encountered before, but we actually visit there finally. Basically, it's what you get when you have a bunch of ex-crime lords create a government that operates on the principle, a deal is a deal. Ah. The city, capital city, is called Maytag, which is a reference to money laundering, and no one alive today even remembers the history behind it. 
And the repairmen are the loneliest people on the planet. <laughs> uh, the, the main, the, the main, the, the central government building slash hotel, that should tell you something right there about the crime lord background, is called the Suds. Yeah. Suds Emporium. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Verdant Vista, renamed Torch. We only run into, the, we only end up on Torch at the, kind of in passing at the very end and almost all the action is off camera but yeah Yeah. victor envisions the the place it becomes a constitutional monarch in fact how it becomes that is really the whole basis of the story becoming a constitutional monarchy under barry and most important this is neutral territory and it's a neutral territory which is the one thing that Manticore Haven and the Solarian League all agree on and have something in common. So if you think that this might be important in the Second Havenite War and the things beyond that, you might not be wrong. Audubon Ballroom, we've actually already kind of discussed that. Uh, I don't know if either of you gentlemen yep. have anything to add. And next is Manpower Incorporated. JP, as we've been going through these short stories, you, you've been making comments about how you think it's leading up to something involving them. Yeah. I think at this point you should have figured out that, yeah, you're right on the money. Yep. And yep. somewhat oh. satisfying, even though it's ugly, but yep. It, it, it's going to, it's going to get uglier, but in a less offensive way. I don't, I don't know how else to put it. Um, the ugliness of manpower is not even close to finished, but, uh, th- th- it's going to be a crucial part of the ongoing story. I just feel like we are digging down through layers of all kinds of nasty things going on in the galaxy. And when we get to the bottom of the well, manpower incorporated is what we're going to find. It's almost like peeling an onion, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I like go. onions, so I, I don't like manpower. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, it's kind of like peeling an onion. Smoking yeah. Frog needs to be mentioned. And by the way, if if you were th- if anyone is out cool. there thinking, what in the world are they doing naming a planet Smoking Frog? Well, that's actually historical. That's actually a historical reference. Um, There's also a, a whole lot of to planets an ancient Mayan history. And this is the Mayan sector after all, right? Siaj was, uh, back, back in ancient Mayan times, he oversaw the replacing of the kings of important some of the important Mayan states under possibly this thought it might be, you know, re- replacing the rule with new rulers. And if you think about that and some of the stuff that Louise and apparently Oroville are thinking about it might be worth I kinda, considering. I didn't, I didn't look it up because I just didn't, uh-huh. but uh, I wondered when we first started coming across or I would say started coming across when it became apparent that um, Jiri, I'm going to say her name. I'm not going to say her name. Yes. I'll, I'll dork it up. I, I wondered if, if that was a Mayan or Mayan derived name. And so it's interesting that you did a quick search and found references to that, at least as a real name. But uh, my my thought was there was some tie to um, to the Mayan culture mm-hmm. or 
or something related to a comparable culture at the time. I I didn't know. Yep. So the Tana Pongzi. Yep. So the name is no accident. <laughs> the name Smoking Frog. The name is no accident, and it, it was isn't uh, some sort of lighthearted reference or anything like that. It, it's an actual historical reference. I think it would be a cool business logo of some sort if it was appropriate. <laughs> yeah. A smoking frog. Mm. Infocane, Fandy's birthplace is mentioned. Uh, we, we never really end up there, but there's just some ongoing references to it. And it's very important to uh, her backstory. She's not genetically engineered, you know, from the science perspective, but she is genetically engineered by the colonists who were trying to breed a super mm-hmm. race, put them in the yeah. harshest possible environment, take the superior what the founders considered the superior race, and let uh, natural selection take its course. And we danced up to that in prior stories, mm-hmm. and uh, that bomb got dropped in this one and left sitting there to go off later. So I, I hope <laughs> yeah. that they... Like we've seen with genetic slavery, that that challenge, how is that different than that? That was a hand grenade. That was a giant uh, bomb that just well, mm-hmm. everybody pointed or somebody pointed at it. And then there it sits. So I, I hope that I hope it comes up and they used not subtle references in the sense that they they're pointing at Germany world, you know, Nazi yep. Germany. But what the. But what came up was not that as the example. It was something that's much broader than that. So that that's terrifying. But then this is what science fiction does for us, right? It lets mm-hmm. these hard issues get talked about without pointing fingers at real people or emotional topics. So we've gone from genetic slavery to to this kind of engineering, for lack of a better descriptor. Gonna be gonna be interesting to see where this goes. It, it, I'm, not, I'm not afraid discussed. of it. I'm, I'm waiting think, anxiously for it to. I, I don't think we're going to get a, as much development as we could, simply because of the amount of room available yeah. in, in the storytelling. Yep. But we, we'll certainly be con. There's certainly going to be some contrasting. Yeah, yeah. Last but not least, it needs. I like it. it needs Thank to you, be David mentioned. and Eric, mm-hmm. for not take not not going light on that. Nope. That's awesome. Nope. They don't dodge the tough, they do not dodge the tough subjects. Last but no. not least, we have the Solarian Office of Frontier Security. Uh, the, these guys. for all three arcs <laughs> are going to be the major face of the Solarian League for, for, for a while. We, we'll find more going on as we peel away that onion that we mentioned earlier. Okay. Yes. And if you got the idea, they're not necessarily a good bunch. That's because they're not necessarily a good bunch. Oh, imagine that. Yeah, I- exactly. So I think I'm going to shut up for a while and I'm going to pass this over to Jim. All right. Tell us a little about the story, sir. Yeah. And uh, I'll stop at each bullet point. And if you want to discuss anything, we will. And if you don't, we'll move along. Fighting between Manticore and Haven has temporarily ended thanks to a truce. Captain Anton Zilwicky, his adopted daughter Barry, Princess Ruth Winton, and Professor Webb Du Havel are sent to the disgruntled Manticoran Alliance member world, Erewhon, 
as the official representatives of Queen Elizabeth III for the funeral of Hieronymus Stein, a notorious anti-slavery activist. Comments? Okay. (laughs) We know where Elizabeth stands on this. It's crystal clear now. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. Uh, There's two things we know very much about Queen Elizabeth. Number one, she is against slavery. And number two, she wants a haven wiped out of the universe forever. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Erewhon's position between Manticore and Haven make it a prime spot for agents from various star nations to play intelligence games. Anton Zilwicky, Barry, and Ruth quickly become entangled in a complex situation between agents from Haven, Solaria, Masada, the Messen uh, Slaving Corporation, Manpower Inc., and the Autobahn Ballroom. Okay, this is one thing that kind of uh, threw me off with the story, is that there was so much, so many different factions uh, in the story, and I, I I didn't know who was with who a lot of the time. So, yeah, that. that I, 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 can understand, I can understand where you're coming from there, and the reason, the, the, the thing that lets them get, that lets them get away with this is keeping in mind this is not intended at any in any way to be anything that stands alone it is nothing more than setting the groundwork for a much bigger story okay so all of those fact yeah th- there's a lot of different factions it's a big shift we we really are in that shift away from the manticore mason aspect of the story into something much much bigger okay All right. Each faction has interests of their own, and Manticore wants to salvage their relationship with Erewhon as well as to upset the High Ridge government. Who allowed the relationship to go bad in the first place? Victor Kachat, the special agent leading the Havenite faction, wants to show support for the anti-slavery cause in an attempt to further drive a wedge between Manticore and Erewhon, thus improving Haven's relationship with them. The Arawanese want assistance in defending their own system security as Verdant Vista, a Messon-owned planet, looms as a threat. A group of Solarian officers work to advance the interests of Oroville Barregos, governor of the nearby Maya sector, whose goal is to stop the Solarian League from completely collapsing and seeks to be prepared for whatever comes next. The Masons want to stay out of the limelight and prevent other factions from attacking their slave-trading industry. The Autobahn Ballroom, under the leadership of the mysterious Jeremy X, want to hit Masson whenever and wherever they can. Finally, the Masadan mercenaries employed by the Masons want to force Manticore to free many of their imprisoned companions. Oh, what a tangled web David and Eric weave. Yeah, fortunately, the Masadan bit is more of a side note that gets quickly squashed. Yeah, so, okay. Um, one of the things I thought was nice about the whole Eruhan uh, bit was the uh, was that MBC gave Prince Michael 
a gift that was specifically paying respects to Queen Elizabeth and and sort of leaving a back door open. And one of the it was kind of clever because when Michael was thinking about this, I remember him. Hmm. So they're leaving the back door open, but the front door is being closed. It's like, yeah, they're, they're going to lose. The kingdom is going to lose Manticore. Or Manticore is going to lose Erohan as an ally. The kingdom is. But when, it's like once they get rid of High Ridge, Elizabeth has got the back door in. And the back door is actually the entrance of honor for their most trusted uh, friends. Ah. Yeah, the Mason conflict, it, it, it's laying a lot together here. and. Right. And, you know, it's like, yeah, you've got manpower, but things go, layers go deeper and deeper and deeper than that. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to get to the bottom. Yeah. Okay. All of the various interests clashing comes to a head with a thwarted kidnapping attempt of Barry and Ruth, a half-sister of the leader of the Masadan mercenaries, aboard the Wages of Sin, a huge orbital pleasure resort in orbit above Erewhon. After the kidnapping is stopped and Manpower's involvement is discovered, a precarious alliance between the Manticorans, Solarians, Havenites, and the Ballroom organizes to launch an attack against Verdant Vista, the planet also known as Congo. Yeah. So. uh, (laughs) I felt like this was, it all built to this, and this was sort of the this was the story in this book was what yeah. happened starting right here. Yeah. So we get a whole ton of Murray leading up to this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Murray. Okay. Finally, uh, the planet is violently taken from manpower and renamed Torch. It is decided that it will be reorganized into an independent star nation for escaped slaves. Torch will represent a power to sponsor the fight against Mesa. The ex-slaves crown Barry Zilwicky as Barry I of the House of Zilwicky, Queen of the Kingdom of Torch, to lead them in their plight. And I'll tell you what, I just wanted to listen to a triumphant march after I finished <laughs> this part. Yes. Dun, 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 dun. Mm-hmm. Of course, yes. That was... Jedi's and Wookiees getting medals pinned on them, and yeah, yeah no, no, wait, that's a different story. Oh, but but it that that would have, been. <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was quite a triumphant ending. It just was really a twisty and turny way to get there. Yeah, right. So, with apologies to George Bizet, uh, I'm <laughs> going to kick this over to JP to talk about themes. All right, two two themes. First, the elephant room slavery, not just the existence of the institution, but we also see a historical reference to a real-world anti-slavery activist in the form of W.B. Du Haven, being the reference to Du Bois, as I mentioned before. And then, Raul, you brought up uh, uh, other links as well. Uh, yeah. So cool Think of cool references. Mm-hmm. Uh, What's that? Oh, go ahead, sir. Oh, just... Cool, cool real world references to a fictional story that is addressing a an ugly real world problem. So kind of kind of neat stuff. But the, the slavery is a theme. Not the first time we've seen it, but it dominates here. And then the second one we could we could 
quickly label dime and move on. But what we really see here is, Jim, you you actually hinted at this uh, as we work toward the themes, the complexity of government and how power balanced inside of a government enables freedom, what I'll call freedom of movement. And that could be for good or bad. In this case, it's good if you take the perspective of Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Not that what's happening is good, but we watch her work with official and unofficial parties to address damage being caused by High Ridge. Everyone is focused on all the surface problems, what I'll call surface problems, that we've seen unfolding for a while because of neglect, High Ridge's neglect. Those are truly problems, but that focus allows the queen and others to use the opportunity to quietly address the problem of slavery. And and I don't mean not powerfully address, I mean quietly address the problem of slavery outside of the real quote-unquote politics that have let the star kingdom of Manicor openly condemn the problem, but also quietly allow it to continue. And Elizabeth has had enough. And by the way, that complexity and that that dynamic and just inside of the Star Kingdom that we've seen tastes of, to me, was just amplified when we watch all the characters that you mentioned. You've got like all these characters, and I don't know who's dancing with who. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's that is that's real, and we we've seen glimpses of it inside of the Star Kingdom. Now we're watching it actually manifest focused through the lens of slavery and anti-slavery. We're watching that that okay, complex reality manifest now on the on the national, on the international or whatever you want to call that scale where it's not just Manicore. So, it's Manicore and Haven and Solaria and the you know the the Masons and uh, um, yes, it's all that and we're watching really weird bedfellows. Oh yeah. JP. Emerge. Uh-huh. And then the, the question becomes, are these two theme points that you've got here actually different themes at all? Because here's the question. You, you heard my comment about o- almost technology as a magic device. Yeah. When you've got a technology that advanced and that readily available, how in the world, what, what, what's the, even the point of genetic slavery to begin with or slavery to begin with? You you would think the, that that the technology is not... Raul was which was the technology which technology well just any as advanced as their technology is what's the point of even having genetic slavery to begin with yeah yeah it, it just doesn't seem like it that doesn't sound on its surface that is even a economically sound proposition like you don't need these manufactured these genetically manufactured humans. Unless there's to do this kind of stuff at all, unless, there's, unless there's a something even bigger than that going on, yeah. So that's what we're going to be finding out. I think, yep. But you know, no espionage story would be complete without at least one or a few characters that you really don't know who's on whose side. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there's always these weird little. Uh, aside alliances that take place between uh, sworn enemies right. to achieve a goal. And it's the secret rules that accompany the not secret rules. Yeah. For how things are going to go down. 
Mm-hmm. But I, you're right, Raul. I, it, it, I don't know that it's really a separate theme or not in this context, other than because we've brought up dime and then the 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 silent P and dime, right? The po- the politics side that drives diplomacy and foreign policy. Yep, we're seeing that bubble to the surface, sort of here, in that mm. Elizabeth is now becoming known or unknown, a real thorn in the side of High Ridge. And she's tackling she's tackling a problem that publicly the Star Kingdom says this is an unacceptable practice. But we know from prior parts of the story that, but it's sort of tolerated by some. I, I'll point at it and say it's unsavory, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to do anything to stop it. And I, I kind of hope that we're seeing the beginning of that coming to a head. I think you're going to like where the whole, all three actually, uh, parts of the story, parts of the yes. saga, uh, grow into, uh, and you but know, those are, I, I, I did those as themes, those mm-hmm. two, whether they're really one is a, is a variation on the other or a larger one applied to the smaller problem set of slavery. But yeah, well, all of this is actually a perfect segue into the, uh, the plot points too. So unless, uh, yeah. there's anything to add to that, let's go ahead and shift to our plot points. Very well. And Jim, do you want to start us? I sure will. Uh, my favorite point of the plot was the relationship that grew, or friendship that grew between Barry and Ruth. Uh, both mm-hmm. young women are strong characters, able to keep their wits about them and deal with complicated situations. What about you, JP? Well, I'm, I'm with you fellers. <laughs> <laughs> like you, I, I love that relationship between those two girls. I hope we get a lot more of that as we move through the, not only the set of uh, stories in particular, but through the honorverse, I think that friendship enables the good stuff that happens in what is otherwise a pretty dark novel. So that was, that was a, their relationship was a very pleasant thing in the midst of a bunch of ugly stuff. I also hope we see something truly good that grows out of the effort to establish the new star nation of Torch, previously Congo, as you guys Mm -hmm. uh, mentioned, or referred to loosely as Congo. That's a a possible light at the end of a very dark tunnel. That's not going to be easy, by the way, but um, that is light at the end of a tunnel that we might be seeing. How about you, Raul? Okay, so for, for me, one of my favorite plot points was the assault on the, the assault in the uh, fairly aptly named wages of sin station that this is a very different kind of combat than we've seen at any point before and possibly since in the universe the, the fight and the aftermath actually it, it engaged me at the very same time it disturbed the heck out of me because you had a running firefight in the absolute worst possible location. In, <laughs> and it was not a short firefight. It was an extended firefight with a lot of civilian casualties. And it also raised some really important moral questions as well. In particular, Victor's decision to let things play out as much as he did. Uh, on the one hand, it's like, okay, didn't he have a moral obligation to... Didn't he have a moral obligation to uh, say something and try and prevent that bloodshed of those few? But on the contrast, at the end of the day, cold-hearted as what it was, he did he not do what was necessary 
for the future in particular, not just Haven, which is actually his responsibility, but possibly for the entire populated galaxy. So tough question there. Sort of like Churchill do you know, or uh, Roosevelt, do we act on our intelligence that we've gotten? And comp- you know, is, is, is the compromise, will, will our capabilities and putting it into this thing or the longer picture be compromised because we did something with this information for the immediate? Yeah. Now, this firefight reminded me of Brian De Palma's Scarface movie when they came into the bar trying to get Tony. Hmm. I mean, it was brutal and hmm. there was yeah. a lot of collateral damage. And, uh, oh gosh, it, it was, it was not a very pleasant, uh, scene. Yeah. It was fun to read, but it, but too many. This fight was not John Wick where only the bad guys got hit. Right. Uh, there, there was, and there were a whole lot of people that, that died here. Good. Yeah. I beg to differ. John Wick's dog was a casualty. (laughs) 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 Oh, Oh gosh. All right. The other thing, and I, I, I guess you could call it a plot point that might be, I liked the interplay between Weber and Flint. Um, yeah. it, it, it's a debate, you know, a lot of people might try to think of it as a conservative, conservative versus a liberal or a capitalist versus a communist, which both of them would I almost be offended by. It's really more of a libertarian versus socialist. And it's a philosophical discussion that is going to go on throughout all of the crown of slave books. Mm. And I like the interplay. And one of the things that I really, really respect the most about it is they don't start out with the, these are our differences. This is not, this is where we disagree. Their starting point is on the areas where there is agreement, where they do agree. Yeah. And I really like that. Um, It's, if you if you want productive debate on a subject, that's how you have to start. And, and it's great seeing this in actual literature between two such talented authors. Yeah. Okay, those are my points. Uh, Jim, I'm going to pass the baton to you for a bit, sir. All right. We're going to move into favorite quotes. Uh, I had one, and it is a description of Masadan philosophy. But the Masadans had twisted patriarchy into what could be called a sick perversion. However stern and autocratic they might be, fathers were not rapists, and it was essentially impossible to describe Masadan doctrines and practice toward women as anything other than sanctified rape, a bizarre and bastard concoction made of equal parts lust and misogyny all of it dressed up in theological gibberish. Good. I I just... There you have the Masadans. Yeah, that is the Masadans in a nutshell. That is Masadans. Yeah, absolutely, sir. What did you find, JP? I had, had frankly, a handful prepared. I'm only going to read two of them. Um, The first one is a conversation between Duhavel and Overstegen. And the quote is about how to counter something bad in the best way, you know, maybe in air quotes, right? The best way. So we're going to watch Webb 
wrestle with how to address the pro- the problem they're talking about in a way that's more moral and more acceptable rather than through simple violence. Duhavel shifted his gaze back to the Manticoran captain under discussion. With far greater interest now, however much distance there might be between him and most in terms of intellectual achievements and public renown, there was one thing which Webb Duhavel shared with any former genetic slave. He hated Manpower Unlimited with a bone-deep passion, and though for political reasons he disagreed with the violent tactics used by the Audubon Ballroom, he never once had so much as a qualm about the violence itself. There was not a single responsible figure in that evil galactic corporation, not a single one, for that matter, on the entire planet of Mesa, whom Webb Duhavel would not himself have lowered into a vat of boiling oil, capering and singing hosannas all the while, if he thought it would accomplish anything. He took a deep breath, controlling the sudden spike of rage, and remembering himself for perhaps the millionth time in his life that if sheer righteous fury could accomplish anything worthwhile, wolverines would have inherited the galaxy a long time ago. Mm. Oh, I, I thought that was a, a cool quote as we watch a gentleman wrestle with his own past and his own preferences mm-hmm. as he s- strives to do the right thing or a better thing. And I got one lighthearted one that I want to throw in here because it really was a, a heavy book, but it had its moments where we got smiles. This is a funny but serious conversation between Commander Watson and Captain Overstegen. If you remember, they're cousins. So this allows this private level of familiarity, but it reveals something I thought was pretty pretty comical. All kidding aside, Michael, she said, allowing herself to use his given name since no one else was present to hear it. We ought to be moving heaven and earth to get back onto the Erewhonese good side, and you know it. We've managed to piss off effectively every other member of the Manticoran Alliance over the last couple of tea years. And Erewhon is probably the only one of them who's madder at us than Grayson is. But does anyone in the government seem even remotely aware of that? If they were, they'd have sent at least an SDP division out here to show the flag and a little respect instead of a single heavy cruiser. And they'd have to replace Fraser as ambassador long before this. I might point out that Countess Fraser is another of my apparently endless supply of cousins, Overstegen said. Is she? Watson grimaced. Well, I stand by my original opinion. I suppose every family has to have its share of idiots. True. It's just my misfortune that at the moment a majority of my family's idiots appear to have found their ways into positions of power. <laughs> <laughs> Overstegen is his own man, right? He's not oh, yeah. a victim of his, fa- of his family's history. Uh-huh. And he, at least privately, is happy to make that point. I think he makes it anyway based on his public behavior, the way he commands and leads. But in a moment of bluntness with the door shut, <laughs> there you have it. There is no doubt about what he thinks about members of his family that are in senior political leadership positions. Mm-hmm. So those are the two I wanted to share. Okay, I have actually got several. How about you? Yeah, all right. But they're short. They're quite short. Uh, you, going on the going on the point of where they seem where, where 
uh, Flint and Weber agree. Much earlier in the book, about a third of the way in, uh, they're just getting into uh, Erohan, and there is this comment made, and I couldn't, for the life of me, there, there's no way I can figure out who, I want to know who wrote this. That's why it's one of the reasons why it's in my quote list. That's a hint, David. It was no accident that Erwahan had the lowest percentage of lawyers relative to the general population of any industrialized world in the human-settled galaxy. The Erwahanese just didn't think in terms of lawyering, whereas a long-standing joke in the Solarian League had a man suing his mother for the trauma inflicted upon him by childbirth. <laughs> I want to know which of them wrote that line. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that line, and all I could think of was Edgar Rice Burroughs' Martian <laughs> series that flashed through my head when he he said the the Martians are a happy people. They have no lawyers. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, anyone that's listening that's a lawyer. I'm I'm not beating up on lawyers for real, but it that was funny. Yep. I thought Edgar Riceboro's comment was hilarious. Yes. And to see this talking about they have the fewest number of lawyers. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, my second quote uh is a little further along here. They're they're working up the they're working up parts of their plan here. Uh Victor Kasha is talking to Thandy and he broke off the connection. Thandy sniffed. She couldn't smell anything herself beyond the scent of old upholstery kept freshly scrubbed by Erwahan's fanatically strict san- sanitation codes. Oh, great, she grumbled. I'm about to get caught in a three-way shootout with a bunch of lunatics and the galaxy's number one junior super spy. All of it under the nose of gangsters come saints who've got the zeal of converts when it comes to lawbreaking. She flipped the mics back on. Out of idle curiosity, do you have a death penalty here on Eruhan? Yeah. <laughs> a little yep. bit of the lightheartedness that was was mentioned. And uh, actually, speaking of lightheartedness, th- this is near the end when uh, Ruth is talking to Jeremy. Jeremy started to argue, but Ruth went and interrupted. He's right, Mr. X. Uh, Jeremy winced. Mr. X is ludicrous. <laughs> the name is Jeremy, if you please. Just Mr. a contrast X. side of <laughs> Jeremy. Of course, I'm surprised yeah. no one's brought up the question of where where's the X part come from, but I'm gonna I'm I'm waiting. I'm just waiting to see yep. how that presents itself. All right. And the last quote is actually a little more serious and for me one of the most touching moments of the book. Uh Webb and Webb and Barry are having a conversation and they're talking about her legacy. And he finally tells her is that, you know, she, she doesn't want to be known as the great for starters. And what Webb finally tells her is aim for the day to come when they call you something which precious few monarchs in the long history of the human race have ever been called. Far fewer when you get down to it than have been called the great. He brought his eyes back to her. Nothing complicated, nothing fancy, just good Queen Berry. That's all. And that'll be enough. She thought about it for a while. I can do that, she pronounced. Oh, yes, dear one, I know you can. That that just re- really just set the book off for me there, there at the end. It, it's one of the things that made, made it all worth it. Good quote. Yep. So from there, right. JP, 
take it away for us to wrap up. I said that was a good quote. So I think it's time to offer up our closing thoughts, any takeaways, that kind of thing from the story. Jim, you want to start us? Sure will. Uh, I don't know. Perhaps there was just too much going on in the story for me to actually digest. As I said, it took me three weeks to get through this book. Uh, between all the various factions and their agendas, not to mention another cast of thousands, I had a hard time keeping it all straight. As I said before, I had a time, a uh, difficult time keeping my head in the story, and I really was not entertained. Uh, often it came across to me as a large collection of words that went on and on until the action finally began to come together in about the last third of the book or so. But by then, it was too late. It had lost me in a Gordian knot of espionage and sexual perversions. And my takeaway is, sorry, I got nothing. JP, I'm going <laughs> to kick it back to you. All right. Hey, that's, that's fair. Mm-hmm. Um, I am interested in seeing what happens on Torch and what ultimately happens with the Star Kingdom's international relationships, specifically as tied to the issue of slavery, now that it's, it's kind of out there in the open. Can't really be easily avoided at this point. Torch is a thing now, sort of like everybody knows what's happened. So the, the, the elephant in the room has got everybody pointing at it, and we don't know what's going to happen. Well, those of you who have read the books know what's going to happen, but I, Jim and I don't know what's going to happen. No. I suspect the other three books in the set won't be as fun, in air quotes, as the others we've read, kind of like this one. Not, not so much fun, but I definitely look forward to seeing where David and Eric take us. And over to you, Raul. Okay. First of all, this book has its own pace, and you must read it at the pace that it sets. At times, you you simply have to put it down. And then at times, you just have to binge through. You're going to find yourself binging through. It's got a, what's the word I'm looking for? Unique balance of disturbing seriousness juxtaposed with almost slapstick comedy. And that actually is going to be a continuing characteristic of at least the Crown of Slave books. And it's, in this case, though, that pacing part, it's not a matter of the two authors and they're getting their feet wet together. It's really sort of the story itself, uh, the kind of material that it's dealing with. It also sets up a major arc for the saga going forward that will be key to some of the future events. There's parts of it that will really make you look askance, but end of the day, I still found it to be a solid read. If you let it, it will also make you think. So I, I don't want to have to work to understand a story. Mm-hmm. I if if I'm reading a book for class for a class I'm taking, I expect it to be work. But if I'm reading a book to be entertained, I don't want to have to work. Mm-hmm. I want to sit back and enjoy it. And that's fair. I, I I completely understand where where you where you can get that from it. And I won't I won't deny it. my my initial reaction to the book the very first time I read it. I almost didn't. W- follow up with the other crown of slave books. Yeah. It I would, I, improves no, on I reread. Would, 
I would say, yeah, I would say I probably need to read it again, but uh, I don't want to invest three weeks in this. <laughs> again. So, all right. It won't take you three weeks, but it, the book itself will set the pace. You won't set the pace. I see. And from there, let's go ahead and uh, take a look at some of the ratings. Uh, Jim, I have a f- sad feeling about where your rating's going to go. Well, I gave it three slinky saris. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, for for reasons I mentioned, uh, I've mentioned already. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna whip that that horse anymore. <laughs> Actually, that was a better rating than I was uh, than I was uh, than than you led us to think you were going to give it. I if. I'll tell you what, if I finish a book, three is about the lowest it's going to go. If it's, if it goes to a two or a one, I didn't finish the book. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't rate it. I mean, I was just completely taken out of the story if I go below a three. So, uh, and I just kind of feel like a one or a two rating is kind of trashing somebody's work. And I don't like to do that. Aha. In so, other words, you have to earn a one or a two. Yeah, you, you really got to. All right, JP, what's what about your rating? I am going to throw down a four. Oh, How about you, right? Raul? And JP, I am going to join you on the four. There were some things that put me off a little bit about it. But like I said, overall and seeing what is setting up, and the interplay with the philosophy and actually having the guts to tackle some of the subject, some of the, some of the tougher questions that it does, uh, for, for me, what gave, went a lot, uh, to pulling that rating back up. Yeah. So a four for me as well. Yeah. So overall that gives us, uh, roughly a 3.7 mm-hmm. together. Uh, Goodreads reported a 4.1 with 5,725 ratings. Amazon came in with a 4.6 with 1,214 ratings. All right. So. It's one of the few times we're outside of that bracket, but we're not way outside of it. No. So we have a shout out to Hank Davis of the TPE Network of Fun and Informative Podcast, our host and guy that's helping us out a lot with this. Thanks, Hank. Yes. We appreciate it. And I do have to give some apologies to uh, some of the folks who've been contacting us. I have been on vacation and I have been ill I- in this time. So I fell a little bit behind on my emails. Uh, uh, so I, we'll I do want to, one person in particular to mention is Mark Singer was asking about uh, online forums where uh, folks can listen and comment and interact. I'm going to probably say our best source there is, uh, Mark, is the uh, Facebook page, Onverse Today Facebook page. Ah, all right. So on our next very exciting episode of the Onverse Today, we are going to be looking at The Shadow of Saganami by uh, David Weber Saganami series book number one. Mm-hmm. We're going to be bouncing around here for a while, so well, it might be a welcome, uh, a welcome mental break from uh, the yep. heaviness of the book we just read. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. 
What uh, what is happening is we are breaking off into three separate arcs that are going to be kind of running more or less in parallel. And at a point coming up, there's going to be a point where everything gets pulled back in together. And I can't think of any place where I've ever seen in, in a story do that kind of split off and come together again. What I will say yeah. is you guys are lucky you're getting to read it in a single fell swoop and not have to wait two or three years, sometimes a little longer, yeah. between the next installment. <laughs> I was I was just thinking that, too. <laughs> yep. So, let's wrap this up. Yes, sir. Say goodnight, JP. Goodnight, JP. So long, everybody. Yep. Goodbye. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to Honorverse today. We welcome your feedback. Email us at honorverse at tpenetwork.com. We are a proud part of TPE Network. Visit us on the web at honorverse.net, on social media, or tpenetwork.com. You can subscribe to Honorverse today by visiting tpenetwork.com slash subscribe. Visit TPE Network for the very best in podcasting. Opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts. They do not reflect the opinions or views of Bain Books, the authors, or TPE Network. Visit Bain.com for the best in science fiction. Many of their books are available from the Bain Free Library found at their site. Theme music is Honor and Sword by Zakar Valaha. Check his website found in the show notes for all your podcasting music needs. <laughs>